Now we're going to finish 2 Thessalonians here tonight. And while they're going, let's have a prayer. And then we're going to get right into this and finish. Well, that's a great group. I'm so thankful for a growing church. What a blessing. And that different giftings are coming out of different people. That's why we're here. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this great word from 2 Thessalonians. We pray that you'll speak to us, guard us with your word, guide us, protect us, direct us. Speak to our hearts, Lord, tonight as we close this incredible letter given to us through Paul by the Spirit of God. Now, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, open my eyes. I receive your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. All right, let's look tonight at don't faint. Somebody needs that tonight. Don't faint. Now that's at the end of the message, that particular passage. But we're going to be covering some neat territory. Now last time we saw that Paul requested prayer from the Thessalonians. And we made this, this statement. Nobody has ever so far along in God that you don't need people to pray for you. If Paul needed prayer, can you say with me, I need prayer. All right, now, uh, he said that, pray that the word of the Lord will run swiftly. And that is the, the heartbeat of my life. I'm asking God that the word of the Lord runs through this church, swiftly around the world, across the nation, throughout the city, without hindrance. And that's why we prayed and that's why we fasted. So that God would remove hindrances and let the word of the Lord run. Because it needs to. And he prayed that he and the other apostles would be protected from what he called unreasonable and wicked men. And we know what that means because we see them all the time on television. That particular kind of person is, seems to be increasing in our land unreasonable, don't want to hear the truth, wicked. And so we're in a battle, and it's not with flesh and blood, but it is with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, rulers of the darkness of this world, demon spirits, lying spirits, deceiving spirits. And the only solution is the truth. That's it. Nothing else will bring the lies of the devil down but the truth. And the truth is in that book in your hand. Matter of fact, you're not holding a book in your hand. You're holding a library in your hand. And it's a library of 66 books. You've got your own library with you. Everywhere you take that Bible is a library full of wisdom, full of truth. Now, this time we're going to see that we Christians are on the winning side. Do you believe that? Paul mentions in verse 3, the Lord and his purposes. Now, they are twofold, twofold purpose that God has for everyone in this room and everybody listening to my voice. The Lord intends to ground us and guard us. And Paul's going to tell us that's the two purposes of God for every believer. He's going to ground us and he's going to guard us. Look what he says in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you. That's grounding you. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Powerful. 
I have to think of Psalms 40 here, where David said, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry as I patiently waited. And what did he do? He brought me up also out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay. That's guarding you. And then what did he do? And he set my feet on a rock. What's that? That's stabilizing you. And established my goings. That's a further statement about stabilizing you. And once you've been delivered, and once you've been grounded, here's what happens next. He has put a new song in my mouth. It's a supernatural song of joy. Y'all ought to smile when I say that. Because it ought to happen to you. See, the more grounded you and I get in the Word, the more He puts a song in our mouth. And what is the song? It is even praise to our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. So right there in Psalms 40, same thing. He's going to deliver you, guard you from the enemy, from the evil one, and He's going to establish or stabilize your goings. And I don't know about you, but I want to be stabilized, established, guarded, and I want to be filled with a new song. Now, the Lord was going to give the Thessalonians both stability and protection. He said, the Lord is faithful. Can we say that together tonight? The Lord is faithful to do what? Establish you and guard you from the evil one. He knows what the enemy is going to try against you before he ever tries it. Said to Simon Peter, Peter, the devil has asked for you. Interesting in the Greek language, the you there is plural. He was looking at Peter, Peter representing all the apostles, and said, the devil has asked for you, all of you. But I've prayed for you, and there in the Greek, it's singular. He looked at Peter and said, but I've prayed for you because you're the one that's going to get it the worst. And I pray that after you have fallen, you'll return, and you will not lose your faith, and you will strengthen the brethren. Notice Jesus didn't say, I've prayed and I've stopped the devil from ever attacking you. He said, no, he's going to attack you, and you're going to learn some things, Peter. He wanted to sift all of you, but he's primarily going for the one who's going to preach at Pentecost. He's going to sift him. But I prayed for you, and what happened to Peter? He denied the Lord third time with terrible curse words. Denied Jesus. Went out and wept bitterly. Couldn't believe what had come out of his mouth. And I believe he remembered the words of Jesus. I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. He remembered that. He came back. And who preached on the day of Pentecost? Simon Peter. Said all that to say that the Lord is faithful to guard you and pray for you and the attacks of the enemy against you. He's praying for every one of us right now. Amen? It's clear in Scripture that God does not exempt His people from the natural disasters and the ills of life. I wish I could tell you He did, but He doesn't. He has never promised immunity from dislike, discrimination, detention, or even death. What He does promise is grace in the storm. He won't protect you from everything. He didn't Simon Peter, but He gave him grace in the storm. He will not allow the devil to go beyond a certain line that he himself draws. 
with an unerring hand. He's got his hand on the dial, on the heat gauge. And he's not going to let that oven get any hotter than he allows it to go. And he's praying for you the whole time. Now, after focusing on the Lord and on his purposes, Paul next concentrates on the Lord and on his people. He says in verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord. How many of you have confidence in him tonight? Do you? Look at this. He said, we've got confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, that struck me. He didn't say, we're confident in you. He said, we're confident in the Lord who's in you. Notice that Paul's confidence was not in the people alone, but in their Lord, the very one of whom Paul had said in another place, quote, he who has begun a good work in you is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Every believer ought to memorize that verse. Philippians 1, 6. He who has started a good thing in you is going to finish it all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? I'm not confident in you, but I am confident that God is bigger than you and bigger than your enemy and bigger than your circumstances. And what he has begun, he's going to finish. You're going to look like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, think like Jesus. He has made up his mind that no matter what happens in your life, it's going to work together for your good. So there it is. Now he said, I'm confident in that. As much as Paul loved them, he did not place his ultimate trust in them, but in the Lord. You know what? As your pastor, I trust Jesus in you. That he's going to keep you. That he's going to guard you. That he's going to feed you. That he's going to provide for you. That he's going to walk with you. That right now he's interceding for you. And satanic assignments that have been released against you, he's going to thwart and hinder and block and stop. I trust the Lord in you. Because I believe that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. Now moving on to verse 5, he says, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Isn't that powerful? The idea is of somebody leading a lamb along. You know, Satan drives you, but God leads you. Satan says, you better do it now. God says, come on, little lamb. Let me lead you. Let me guide you. There's nothing frantic about it. There's nothing hectic about it. There's nothing alarming about it. He just guides and he beckons, and that's the idea here. And what is he praying? He, he's asking God, Lord, guide their hearts into the love of God. One, that they would experience it. Two, that they would give it. But then he says, and into the patience of Christ. Now, that can be rendered into the patient sufferings of Christ. That is, help them, Lord, to be patient in their suffering like you were in yours. Lord, direct their hearts into being patient with what they suffer with. Now, I wish I could stand up here tonight and tell you that when you become a believer, there's no more suffering. That would be a bald-faced lie. Because there's going to be suffering. Jesus said, in this world, it's a guarantee. You're going to have tribulation of one kind or another. 
It's a world under assault. It's a, it's a war game. It's a war, it's a battlefield. So there's going to be suffering. There's going to be some bleeding. There's going to be some bruising in this battle. But he said, I'm praying that as you go through different sufferings, you're able to say, I trust God. And his grace is sufficient for me. If I can't pray it away, rebuke it away, bind it away, fast it away, talk it away, then Lord, grace me to walk under it with joy. The Lord Jesus exercised incredible patience with fallen men during his earthly ministry. So it's not just our sufferings, but how many of you can say, now don't look at your spouse or anybody you know when you amen amen me on this one. Because I want you to get home safely. All right? But how many of you can say, sometimes people vex me? Or let me be easier, try me. Or bug me. Can I try that one? Are y'all living on earth like me? All right? And he says, I want you to experience the patience towards others that Jesus did. Because listen, have you ever thought about the 12 he chose? If I came to change the world, I would not have walked along the shores of Galilee and picked a bunch of old fishermen. But that's what he did. Or a tax collector. But that's what he did. His own disciples required extraordinary patience at times. Like the time James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven on Samaria. And Jesus had to say, you don't know what spirit you're of. What are you talking about? You want to roast these people alive? I'm so glad that God is God and I'm not. And I'm so glad that God is God and you're not. Because the church would just be a bunch of ash piles. That's all that it would be. Because we would be calling down fire all the time. Thank God we don't have firepower. Boy, they're bugging me. Lord, let it fall. Whoosh. How many of you wish you had that power at least once in your life? Okay, I want to know. There we go. I'm talking to real people. Now, how about when on his way to the cross, they started arguing. Jesus is going to the cross. And what do they do? They start arguing. I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. Well, you're not going to be the greatest because I'm the greatest. And here's Jesus on his way to the worst death available to mankind in that day. And they're squabbling over who's going to be the greatest. Don't you think that right then he had to put on serious patience? Now, now, boys. I can't give that to you and you can't pick it. Only my Father in heaven is going to choose who's the greatest. But I'll tell you this, if you want to be the greatest, be the servant of all. Well, that took care of the whole argument because nobody wanted to be that. Jesus just kept on working with them and he does with us. And so are we Christians called to be patient and long-suffering with other people. And he said, Lord, direct their hearts into being able to do that. Now next, the, the believer is charged and encouraged to walk in a disciplined lifestyle. Everybody say discipline. Discipline's not easy, but boy, you love what it gives you, don't you? I read Michael Jordan one time, said, I hate my trainer. He said, I can't stand my trainer. Now he was tongue-in-cheek, but he said, I hate seeing him every day because I know what he's going to run me through. He's going to make me lift weights and run and push-ups and sit-ups and all this stuff. But then he said, but I sure like the result. We love the results. We just don't like the process. But he's talking about discipline. He says in verse 6, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw. Everybody say withdraw. 
Now notice Paul was not politically correct. Because he said, I want you to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition, which is, remember last week, tradition means oral communication, word of mouth of what Jesus had taught. That's what he meant by tradition. He said, I want you to withdraw from every brother who is refusing to walk in the truth that you have received from us. Now, this is a clear call for the exercise of church discipline. And political correctness doesn't like that. No, you shouldn't discipline anybody, because that's not love. Let me show you what it means. The word for withdrawal is from the Greek word used for the rolling up of a sail on a boat. Like you take the sail down and you roll it up. Okay? That's the picture. Something that was blowing in the wind and very clear and very visible is taken down and folded up. In a sense, it is withdrawn. It suggests shrinking back from somebody. We're not to associate with a believer whose life is disorderly. Now, that's a strong word, isn't it? Hello, y'all. You got a case of the no-nods. Do this or do this. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? It is. How often do you see this happen in churches? Now, this certainly flies in the face of political correctness and false concepts of love that abound in our day. Our culture doesn't understand real love. It's sort of this squishy, gushy, mushy, emotional thing where you never discipline, you never have a strong word, you never disagree with somebody, you never judge them, you never anything. And God's love disagrees with that concept. Is that the way the Lord treats you? Or does He love you enough to correct you? Does He love you enough to judge sin in your life? Does He? Sure. No chastening, for the moment seems to be joyous but grievous, but afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And what does he say to us there in that chapter in Hebrews? He says, every child, every son of God is chastened. If you're not chastened, you're not a son of God. So time to time, God is going to whoop you in love to bring you back in line. Y'all smile at me like I just said something terrible. God's not going to whoop me. Oh, you don't know God. Get ready. If you're a new child of God, be obedient. But if you ever start to stray, you're going to find out that what I said tonight is true. God has a woodshed out back. Go there a few times and you do your best to avoid it. Now, keeping aloof from a disorderly brother or sister is an effective way of letting them know that their conduct is unacceptable. If you accept everything somebody does, even if it's wrong, what are you doing? You're saying to them, hey, it's okay. You're not doing anything that's going to hurt you. Do whatever you want to do. I love you anyway. That's not love. You wouldn't treat your children that way. If they came walking in and said, gee, mom, dad, I think today I'm going to go try heroin. What would you say? Oh, sure, I love you. Go ahead. You would say, you do that, and you and me are going to the woodshed. Now watch, this is not a call to a holier-than-thou attitude, nor is it to be elitist or unloving. The word for disorderly means not keeping in rank. That's what he says. 
watch out for those who are not keeping in rank. The disorderly person is like a soldier who's out of step. They are out of place, out of order. They're not walking in God's truth. These are people who have, who have begun to stray from the Word of God and have gone into a life of disobedience somewhere in their life. And I said, you see that, there's going to come a point where you've got to part ways in love and send a message to them, this is wrong and it's hurting you and I can't run with you like I used to because I've got to let you know I'm concerned for you and I'll restore a fellowship when you restore your relationship with God. But in the meantime, know that I'm praying for you, I love you, and I'm going to believe God to bring you back home. But I can't put my seal of approval on this. That's what love does. They're not walking in truth, these people. They're out of sync with the truth of Christ. The following verses detail for us some examples of what he means by disorderliness. So Paul is going to lay a few examples out. Here we go. First of all, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his own integrity. Paul was a man of incredible, sterling integrity. He says in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly, out of sync with the truth, living an independent life away from God when we were with you. But you watched us with your own eyeballs. You saw us every day. And you know we were not disorderly, but we were walking with God. So much so that we can say to you, follow us, and the peace of God's going to be on your life. Woo. Wouldn't it be neat to be the place in our walk we could say to a younger brother or sister, do what I do, live like I live, and God's peace is going to sit on you. You know what? We ought to be able to say that. Paul's missionary team had been an example of self-discipline. They knew how to keep rank among themselves. There had been no jockeying for position no insubordination and no disorderly conduct. They could honestly say, follow us and you won't go wrong. They were a tight team following Christ with every atom of their being and they were an incredible testimony when they arrived into a town or a city to preach the gospel and build a church. Not only did Paul remind them of his integrity, but he also reminds them of his industry, which means work. Look at verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Do you catch that? Here comes Paul and his team into, say, Corinth. They're going to build a church. They're going to preach the gospel, have a crusade, and then build a church. They could have easily said to the believers that came around, uh, listen, uh, give us some of your money so we can buy, or give us some of your food so that we can be taken care of while we're here. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. It was Paul's policy on the mission field. He didn't want anybody to ever accuse him of being in it, quote, for the money. He was very self-conscious about that. He chose to make tents to pay for his own expenses, along with the needs of his missionary team. There's little doubt that if his team was not working, they were witnessing, because Paul abhorred idleness now first we saw his integrity 
then his industry. Now Paul is going to remind them of his intention. He says in verse 9, not because we don't have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Now Paul was motivated in everything that he did by purpose, not pride. He wasn't refusing their help because he had pride. He was refusing their help because he had a purpose. And the purpose was to be sure they understood, I'm here to win your soul, and I want your soul, and that's all that I want. He had a purpose. It would have been very easy and scriptural for Paul to follow his own advice to Timothy when he said, quote, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. He could have said, the Bible says, I deserve some of what you have because I'm, I'm treading out this field. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm winning your souls. So I deserve some of what you have. And he told Timothy to go ahead and do that. But he himself refused. He bent over backward to put to rest the lie that he was making merchandise of his converts. He reminds them also of his intimation. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Can we read that last part together? If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Can we send this to our government? Can we send this to Washington? Because look at that passage real closely, and here's what you have there. That's the Christian work ethic. And that's the work ethic that made America great. That right there. If any man will not work, he should not eat. And if you don't eat for a while, you'll, you'll feel a motivation to work. You'll feel a sudden strange impulse to go do something to get something into your stomach, won't you? Farmers, now here's the, the, the thing that I, I want you to get. This verse contains the work ethic that we call the Christian work ethic. But when you go to the Old Testament, there was a sort of a social security system under the Mosaic Law. Uh, but it was, it, it, it was based on work. It was not a freebie thing. Let me show you what I mean. Farmers in the Old Testament, when reaping their harvest, were obliged to leave the corners of their fields unreaped, along with the harvest leftovers. That's what Ruth was gleaning in the book of Ruth. When she was following along and Boaz said, let her glean from the field. He was talking about these corners that were unreaped and the harvest leftovers. He made sure she got what she needed. This was for the poor. The government, let me be clear, did not put its hand into the pocket of a hard-working citizen to put money in the hand of a lazy person who had no taste for work. God never told his people well, there's a few sloths over there, so you work hard and then give them some of what you get because they don't have any motivation to work. They're just kind of lazy, but take care of them anyway. God never did that. No, no. When they had to go glean the corners of those fields or pick up the leftovers, they had to work to get it. Nobody gave it to them. They had to go work to get it. Work was made available. The poor could follow the reapers, and as the reapers went along, they got behind them and gleaned what was left over but they had to work. 
Likewise, in the New Testament, provision was made for the genuine widow. Read about it in 1 Timothy 5, verses 4 through 13. But beyond that, social welfare was up to the family, not the government. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, quote, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So to, to not help your mom, your dad, your own flesh and blood when they're in need, genuine need, legitimate need, Paul said, you're worse than an infidel. And you've denied the faith. Because the faith is all about love. Jesus said, I was in prison, you visited me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. It is inherent in the DNA of the Christian faith to care for those who can't care for themselves, especially your own family. In America, we have lost our way. Can I preach a little bit right now? As we speak, up to half of Americans are on some kind of government assistance. It is, it's stunning. It's almost beyond imagination. There are currently more people on food stamps than at any time in our history, ever. And half of Americans pay no income taxes. Well, what are they doing? Well, they're going down and they're getting food stamps and they're getting different kinds of government help. I'm talking about able-bodied. I'm talking about people who could work. And you say, well, I can't find a job. Well, then your job ought to be eight hours a day looking for a job till you get a job. But not realizing, well, the government will take care of me for a year, so I'm just going to kick back and enjoy life and, and uh, get my food stamps and get my government help and live off of the taxpayers. Let me give you an example. Let's say this week I called you and said, hey, let's go out to eat. And you said, sure, pastor, where do you want to meet? I said, what about Del Frisco's? I am in the mood for a serious steak. Now, if you don't know about Del Frisco's, you can't walk out of there without having spent about 100 bucks, two of you, on a steak, an incredible steak, some uh, asparagus, um, some good food. So I said, let's go to Del Frisco. You said, okay, I'll meet you there. And we had this great meal, and I ordered mine, and you ordered yours. And at the end, when the bill came, I slipped it over towards you. And you said, oh, well, uh, let's see, my part is, and I said, oh, hey, listen, I so appreciate you taking care of mine. Now, at first, you might think, well, he's my pastor, you know, and I can do it this one time, but I sure wish he would have said, uh, you know, Bonanza instead of Del Frisco's, but we're here, so this one time. Then I called you a week later. I said, hey, what are you doing? And you said, well, I'm just, uh, I'm really busy right now. You know, I just feel led that we need to go out to, and we went out again, and we ordered up a great meal, and then I said, thank you so much, and slid that bill over to you. Now, by about now, or at least after the third and fourth time of this, you're thinking, where am I now going to go to church? <laughs> because something's wrong here, because he's expecting me to pay his bill every time. But don't you know that's what you do? If you don't pay taxes, and you could work, and you should work, and you're letting me, a taxpayer, pay for your meal. Over and over and over again. 
I'm going to tell her, Arna, Kathy was in a, a business office this week. And she was sitting in a, in a chair, and these two guys were sitting right behind her. Now, she's getting bold in her, in her, in her, she's getting bold as she grows in the Lord. Now, watch this. So she's sitting there, and the, these two guys are behind her, and, and they were in their 30s, able-bodied, very healthy-looking guys, and one of them was messing around on a cell phone, and he said to the other guy, he said, man, when you go to get your food stamps, he said, you know, now when you go, they'll give you a free cell phone, and they'll give you 500 free hours. Then he said, here sits Kathy. She's, she's sitting there, and she can't help it here because they're right here. And then he said, I just wish they could roll those hours over. Why don't they roll those hours over? It was all she could take. She turned around and said, let me tell you something. Those phones are not free. My wife, now, I wasn't there. They stopped. She said, that phone is not free. I paid for it. They said, what? They said, yeah, because you could work. She did, because these were healthy-looking guys. These were not people infirmed. She said, you could work. And here you're taking food stamps and these phones, and you're griping about the fact that you can't even roll the hours over. She said, but you didn't get them free, because I paid my taxes this year, and I paid my taxes every paycheck. So actually, I'm paying your way. They got up. And they walked out and left her standing there. Now, you know that I teach only what I see in the Scriptures. I'm just teaching you the Word of God. That for our government to have such an entitlement culture, here's what it means, that half of those who do pay their taxes are paying the way for the other half every day. Most of whom are not disabled, and could and should be either working or actively looking for a job. And you know that a nation that embraces this level of entitlement spending cannot long be sustained? Eventually, the number of people living off the hard work of others breaks the financial back of that nation, and the whole thing will, will descend into chaos. We are all for helping people, and I want to be clear about that. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you, I checked. Our church probably gives more benevolence help to people than almost any church in this city. Now, I want to help people who are looking and can't find anything, who are in trouble. I'm not saying we don't want to help, but there is something wrong with somebody who could help themselves and won't. It's not right. It's not Christian. Our country has increasingly embraced an entitlement mentality that says, you owe me. But let me tell you what the America owes us. Nothing but protection from our enemies and delivery of our mail. And it starts, stops right there. Our country doesn't owe us anything else. Hello? Your Jehovah Jireh is not the government. It is the real Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, the God who provides. Oh, I just can't wait for the feedback when this goes on the radio. But I am so sick and tired of this entitlement mentality. 
I am so tired. Listen, I don't want somebody else's stuff. If I can walk, if I can talk, if I can pick something up, if I can help myself, I don't want your help because God strengthens me to take care of me and mine. And that's the way it is. Next, Paul directly addresses something that has been reported to him. He says in verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. Remember, not walking in the truth. And they're not working at all, but they're busybodies. Now, some of you are thinking, man, I missed it coming to church tonight. <laughs> but no, you didn't, because we need to hear this. Oh, may God restore us to the Christian work ethic and to the Word of God. Amen? What a sad picture of a professing Christian. Remember that the word disorderly was used to describe the folding of a sail. So what a graphic picture of the lazy man folding his arms and settling back to do nothing to contribute to the well-being of the community, content to coast along on the efforts of others. That ruins potential. That ruins promise. That destroys families. It tears marriages apart. It's one of the reasons that we are plagued with single-parent dwellings because so many men leave because they're not needed to earn the bread because the government has become the father and they're not the father. The daddy is the daddy. And that's all that we ought to be doing and how we ought to be living. So, goes on, Paul was indignant about this. He said, you ought not be sitting around doing nothing and being a busy, busy body. Love, compassion, and a helping hand should absolutely be extended to the poor, the disabled, the aged, and the infirm, but not to able-bodied people who feel that society owes them a living or that the government ought to pay off your college loan. Hello! Paul also used the word busybodies, bodies that are busy, but they're not busy working. They're busy digging into your stuff. This word literally means to be busy about useless matters. It carries the idea of being a meddler in other people's business. Rather than being busy at work, they're busy prying into other people's affairs and then gossiping about what they find. Paul said, tisk, tisk, tisk. Mm -mm. We would say they have too much time on their hands. In response, Paul gives a word of command. Here's what he says in verse 12. Those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, our example is Jesus. How many of you say, he's my example? Jesus is my example. All right. What did Jesus do? For many years, Jesus toiled as a carpenter. Until he went off on his ministry, he helped his daddy in the wood shop. That is his earthly stepfather, Joseph, because his real daddy was God. When he became a traveling preacher, he did not have a fancy horse to ride. He walked. If the Lord of the universe chose to work and toil with his hands for a living, why should we think that we ought not to work and work hard? Because he left us that example. Paul also used the word quietness, which means to be silent. We would say, shut up. Y'all just got to let me be a little salty tonight. You're taking me too seriously. I'm trying to keep some levity here. Shut up. Okay, 
It speaks to the kind of quiet calm that arises from within and causes no disturbance to other people. You don't have time to get messed up in other people's stuff because you're taking care of your own. It calls for the very opposite spirit that the one that motivates uh, the busybody. Now Paul said, work and eat your own bread. The Christian is not to be ever on the lookout for a handout. We are not called to sponge off of others. Now, take help if you're doing everything and you can't do it yourself and you need some assistance. I get it. That's different. We roll up our shirt sleeves and we get to work to bring home the bacon. Then Paul brings a word of caution. He says, you better be careful, brethren, that you don't grow weary in doing good. Perhaps this cautious word came because many in the Christian community had been played for suckers in trying to help others. And they just said, you know what? I'm tired of trying to do good. I try to do good and people burn me, take advantage of me. Years and years ago, we had a guy come in to our church and he played a violin and shared a sad story and needed some cash. And this is when I knew better than to give somebody hard cash who I didn't know. So we gave him some cash And he walked out, and I thought, well, that was good. We helped him. God saw to it that that day, I just happened to be driving down a certain road. There he was. Hallelujah. And I saw that our cash went into a bottle to feed an addiction. Now, I could have said right then, you know what? This helping people is for the birds, but we just learned to be wiser with it. They needed to keep in mind that there are needy and deserving cases, and there are, and we help them all the time, and we're thrilled to do it. There might also have been a possible reaction against too much ministry without enough rest. Their spiritual tank was running on empty, and they were becoming discouraged. And the secret key to avoiding this is a life of balance. Can you say balance with me? Jesus can be found in the Gospels regularly withdrawing to an isolated place away from the crowd in order to pray. Look what he did. He carefully maintained a balance between work and worship and ministry and personal maintenance. He did not allow himself to burn out, but he burned on because he kept a life of balance. He was never weary in well-doing. Weary with his journey? Yes, John tells us so in chapter 4, verse 6. But weary in well-doing? Never. He knew how to draw on the inexhaustible resources of God, which I've had to teach myself. And still do. Because I have a really strong tendency to get so involved with the work of the Lord that I get away from the Lord of the work. And I've burned out before. Bad. And I learned a tough lesson. As much as you want to keep on going and win more people and teach more messages, you've got to pull back. You've got to care for your own soul and keep a balance. Worship work ministry maintenance paul closes by putting some teeth into his command if anybody does not obey our word in this epistle note that person and don't keep company with him there he goes again that he may be ashamed but don't count him as an enemy admonish him as a brother now we would say well that's not loving but it served the purpose of first disassociating the church from the appearance of agreeing with this kind of behavior And it was also designed to bring the offender to his senses. It says the prodigal 
came to himself and went home. Now, unfortunately, nowadays you try to discipline somebody, they just go down the street and join another church. And nobody asks them, where'd you come from? How did you come from there? Are you bitter? Are you better? Did God lead you out or did you leave in a bad way? Discipline is circumvented and he never changes. But Paul finally encourages them to treat him with love. If he repents, after you've distanced yourself from him, receive him back with open arms as the father did the prodigal son. Now let's stand together and read the benediction. And we're done with 2 Thessalonians. Has it blessed you? Now I know it was tough stuff tonight, but how many of you know what I read tonight needs to be read in the halls of Congress? Come on, seriously. And y'all need to pray for Kathy because she's out there. (laughs) I said, wow, Kathy. All right, let's read this together. Now may the Lord of peace, come on everybody, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Give him a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Send us out in peace. Thank you for your blessing, Lord. And we pray that, Lord, you will help us to apply what we've heard and turn this nation around from a welfare nation to a Christian work ethic nation once again. That we would be the greatest nation on the face of the earth as we were when we honored you. In Jesus' name. And before you go, David C. has a quick announcement. And I don't know what... Can you do this, David? (laughs) Sure. Let me put this in your ear. Yeah. Saturday morning, 7.30, room 150, 